Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm sure that uh, during their lifetimes, uh, Winston Churchill and George Orwell wondered things like that. To help us with the, the sorting out of these details, we have Thomas Ricks, the author of Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thomas, thank you for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. It is so interesting to think that uh, during the course of their lifetimes, um, these two figures were not revered at all points. Um, Maybe we'll take them one at a time because you say in your book, uh, Churchill, down and out in the 30s, which I think is uh, quite whimsical. But uh, yeah, his his, uh, thoughts were not accepted very well, right? People tend to forget that. You know, nowadays we see him as, oh, big, you know, this figure on the, on the screen. Two movies are made about him almost every year, it seems. Uh, in the 1930s, he was seen as washed up, political career over, irrelevant, um, and somebody who was not really getting with the program. The program was the Conservative Party of England was in power, and its policy was to appease the Nazis, to buy off Hitler by letting him bite off little chunks of Europe. That's where the smart money was. People said, look, we just fought World War I. Uh, nobody wants to fight another war. Even if we were willing to fight Germany, France is going to collapse. It, it's still on, on the ropes from World War I. Italy will be against us. Uh, the Russians will probably sit out the war, so we'll be alone. And we can't fight a war. So that's where the smart money was. And Hitler was growing more and more in power and was seen rather warmly by a lot of people in England, especially the aristocrats, the Conservative Party. They thought they could live with Hitler and work with him. Churchill says no, that you are going down the wrong path here. And for that, he is basically sent into exile by his own party. And... He really grew close to despair in 1938. You get the Munich deal, in which uh, England, led by Chamberlain, and France basically tell Hitler it's okay to go take apart Czechoslovakia. You uh, have the British soccer team going to Berlin to play a game in the Olympic Stadium there. And before the game begins, they give the Nazi salute to Heil Hitler at the request of the British government. So Churchill really thought he had lost it, but he fought again and again. And suddenly, in May 1940, things turn a bit, and he finds himself prime minister. It just goes to show that uh, almost anything is possible, and uh, the the fortunes of people in in the long lens of history can be uh, quite different. Let's talk about uh, George Orwell, whom uh, we all know for his uh, visionary writing, but uh, certainly... Orwell didn't really think too much about uh, Churchill either, right? Well, he, um, he was an admirer uh, of Churchill. Uh, it's interesting because they're so different in so many ways. You know, Churchill 
is an extrovert, a gourmand, an alcoholic, um, an imperialist, a conservative politician, and Orwell's the opposite. He's a skinny, sickly, tuberculoid, chain-smoking failure of a novelist most of his life. And in fact, one thing I really like about both these guys is most of the time, for most of their lives, they're failures. And that's kind of the human condition. Most of us fail in most things most of the time. We're not who we want to be every day, and we all end up dying. Uh, but amidst this panoply of failure, these two guys have a couple of magnificent achievements. Churchill really only has one good year in his life, which is 1940, the year he becomes prime minister. If you're going to have one good year in your life, saving Western civilization is a good thing to do. Uh, Orwell has even more failure in his life. He's an unknown most of his life. He dies before the age of uh, 50 of tuberculosis. Uh, and in his last couple of years of life, he writes two magnificent books. First, Animal Farm, making fun of the Russians, and then 1984, about the state trying to take away the individual's right to think. And these are two great achievements that have grown since his death and are now seen as major books of our time, which they were not at the time they were published. So they, they're very different people, uh, but they admire each other across this ideological gap. Uh, when Orwell writes 1984, he names the hero of the book Winston. There was only one Winston in England in the 1940s. Everybody knew what that meant. And when Churchill reads the book, he likes 1984 so much, he reads it twice and then recommends it to his doctor. And then the last piece that Orwell writes in his life for publication, he's on his deathbed in a hospital. He writes a review of Churchill's uh, World War II memoirs. He loves the book and salutes Churchill as not just a great politician, but a man with generosity of spirit. So they're interesting in admiring each other for all their differences. In, in terms of their... Um relationship with each other did they have ever the opportunity to be in each other's company never met never looked each other up and i think probably actually would not have had a lot to say to each other there was such a gap between them i mean what, what really brings it home to me is two meals in world war ii orwell one day comes home to his flat in london and his wife has left out a meal for the cat and his dinner and by mistake Orwell eats the cat's food and doesn't notice it. Uh, by, by contrast, Churchill is in the British Embassy in Cairo in World War II in Egypt, and one morning he wakes up, comes down to the breakfast table, and asks for a carafe of cold white wine. And the British ambassador's wife says, wine, Prime Minister, it's breakfast. And he says, don't worry, madam, I've already had two whiskey sodas. Churchill, he was always coming up with those little those little kickers, wasn't he, Thomas? He, he was just a, a master of uh, mic dropping in his time, wasn't he? He really was. So much so, he's kind of become the Yogi Berra. <laughs> um, half the witticisms um, attributed to him never happened. There's the the old, the one about um, sir, if you were my a woman says to him, sir, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee, and he responds. Madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. Um, actually, it turns out he, ne he never said that. He did say rather meanly once, a woman rather shocked at dinner during World War II said to him, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk. <laughs> 
And he said, yes, but you're ugly, and I'm going to be sober in the morning. So that one's true. That one's true, unfortunately, because it does strike me as mean-spirited. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm not going to fight you on that one. Also, you, you uh, mentioned in the book that these these two men who, you know, are revered today— um, Almost didn't make it, right? Both of them had like a little brush with death along the way, and you, know, you, you have to wonder how the world would have been different without one or the other. Yeah, uh, both of them in the 1930s nearly died. Churchill is uh, down and out trying to make some money in uh, New York, crossing Fifth Avenue. Being British, he looks the wrong way in traffic and is hit by a taxi cab, dragged 50 feet, his scalp is lacerated, has a couple of broken ribs, and very lucky it didn't break his neck. Um, he was in the hospital for quite some time uh, and feeling pretty down about the world and himself. Likewise, a few years later, spring of 1937, George Orwell is in Spain fighting in the Spanish Civil War and stands up at dawn one morning to check on his troops. And with the sun behind him, he's silhouetted, and a sniper hits him right in the neck. You know, your neck has three really vulnerable things your arteries, your windpipe, and your spine. But the bullet, amazingly, doesn't hit any of them, and to his surprise, he survives. However, he loses his voice for a few weeks, and he finally goes home to England to recuperate, and he sits down and reads all the newspapers about the Spanish Civil War and realizes all the newspapers are lying about it. And he writes a fervent essay saying, the first thing you have to do is tell the truth without regard to ideology. Remember, a lot of people back then said communism is good, so anything that helps communism is, is by objectively a good thing. So if lying helps communism, it's good. And Churchill and Orwell both agreed, no, you don't begin by saying ideology makes facts. You begin by saying what are the facts of the matter, and then you make your decisions based on the facts. And that brings us a little bit to today when people are saying facts don't matter, opinion, my opinion is what counts here. Uh, and they were both, Churchill and Orwell said, actually, no, facts do matter. What is happening with the Jews in, in Germany in the 1930s? Uh, Churchill asked in the House of Commons, what is happening with German rearmament? Let us talk about these things. Likewise, Orwell says, you people say communism is good, but I see the communists throwing a lot of people in jail and killing a lot of people, and that's not a good thing. I have a problem with that. And that's actually why I end my book with Martin Luther King Jr. sitting in the Birmingham City Jail in 1963 and writing about the facts of Birmingham. He's very similar to Churchill and Orwell. He says, what are the facts of the matter? What are our principles? And what are we going to do about it? And he says, the job here is not for me. The job is for America to live up to its stated laws. The law says I, as a black man, can vote. The city of Birmingham says me, as a black man, no, you can't vote. So what is it going to be, America? Are we a country that obeys the law or not? And I think that kind of takes us to today, where the key issue is, are we a nation of laws? Will people obey the laws? Uh, does the Bill of Rights still apply? And these are the things that Churchill and Orwell found so crucial to freedom are in our basic Bill of Rights, the right to um, free speech, the right to think for yourself, and the right to assemble peaceably with other people for political reasons. Uh, and so whenever you see people opposing free speech on the right or the left, I say that's un-American. And I think Churchill and Orwell provide a good basis for understanding how dangerous it is to do away with those basic rights.
When uh, Orwell's books were, were published, uh, I know you said that, uh, you know, Churchill had some admiration, but uh, were they were they well-received? And, and was Orwell's commentary that he did for the BBC, was that well-received? I mean, we have, you know, in our society, there are people who are uh, roundly criticized for their work, but uh, they continue to work anyway, and they continue to espouse their viewpoint. So how were these things received in time? Orwell's early books, uh, he wrote a series of novels in the 1930s, um, were very minor novels, and, and he wrote them for money. He needed money, and they're, in fact, unreadable. Uh, I've tried repeatedly. Uh, Orwell's books so become very different. His first great book is Homage to Catalonia, which is his, his book about the Spanish Civil War, actually my favorite book of his. It only sold 250 copies in his lifetime, though. His first big book is Animal Farm, which is published right after the end of World War II. The reason it was published after World War II was paper wasn't available until then. It had been ready to be published for several months. But World War II ends, and bang, the, the rationing of paper ends, and the, his publisher is able to put it out. It's a huge hit across Europe and America. And for the first time in his life, he has some money. He actually starts paying off some debts and loans from years earlier. But he knows he's dying. He knows he's very sick. And he sits down to write 1984 as a dying man, finishes it, and it's published, and he's dead within a, a year. And that book took off, became a huge bestseller. The surprising thing is it's still a huge bestseller, estimated 50 million copies have been sold of that book now. That's incredible. And I know, Thomas, we have to let you go, but it's our pleasure to have you on the show to talk about Churchill and Orwell, the fight for freedom now in paperback and uh, very provocative. So thanks for doing the show. We certainly appreciate it. You're welcome. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t-mobile.com.